If you have been learning from the Be The Bridge podcast, our work, I want you to consider becoming a financial partner today. And the other way you can become a financial partner is by shopping our store. You can sport our apparel to uh, represent what Be The Bridge stands for. And this donation goes to a special cause. And so just a reminder, um, our vision is seeing that all are equipped to flourish through expanding our reach and continuing to spread the good news of social justice. Um, we are able to pursue this vision and fulfill our mission of empowering people and culture toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial reconciliation through your generous donor support. So thank you for supporting all that Be The Bridge does. Thank you for giving to us. And just remember, we're not the only way, we're just one way to get us on the path to racial equity, racial healing, and racial reconciliation. Thank you so much for your support. We want to learn a little bit more about our Be The Bridge podcast family. We've created a quick survey for you to fill out. Make sure to click on the show notes and you will find the survey link at the end. Be The Bridge, Be The Bridge. You are listening to the Be The Bridge podcast with Latasha Morrison. How are you guys doing today? It's exciting. Each week, Be The Bridge podcast tackles subjects related to race and culture with the goal of bringing understanding but I'm going to do it in the spirit of love. We believe understanding can move us toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial unity. Latasha Morrison is the founder of Be The Bridge, which is an organization responding to racial brokenness and systemic injustice in our world. This podcast is an extension of our vision to make sure people are no longer conditioned by a racialized society, but grounded in truth. If you have not hit the subscribe button, please do so now. Without further ado, Let's begin today's podcast. Oh, and stick around for some important information at the end. Since 2007, Stephen Satterfield has spent his career redefining food and beverage as a means of organizing, activating, and educating. He is the founder of Whetstone, a groundbreaking magazine and media company dedicated to food origins and culture worldwide. Before his career in media, Satterfield was a somnolent and a social entrepreneur promoting wine as a catalyst for socioeconomic development for black wine workers in South Africa. Satterfield is among the most prominent and respected voices in U.S. food media and host of the critically acclaimed Netflix docuseries, High on the Hog. We call our food soul food. Cheers. This type of food, you can feel when you eat it. Ah, aroma. The truth is, a lot of American food has its roots in African-American food, traditions, and ingenuity. And you see, it already smells like mac Absolutely. and cheese. This standard yummy dish has a really old history. I'm Steven Satterfield, and I'm on a journey to uncover the stories of African-American food and meet the new generation preserving our history. I'm so glad to have Stephen Satterfield here with the Be The Bridge community today. And so um, we're going to just get started. And Stephen, I know you're not in the States right now. You're getting some time away. So thank you so much for uh, making time to talk with us. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, Stephen actually is responsible for a critically acclaimed Netflix docuseries called High on the Hog. And I just got to tell this story right quick before we even get started. I watched it and was blown away and really inspired. And then later to find out that our team had already worked on um, getting him for the Be The Bridge podcast. I'm so excited to have Stephen Satterfield here today. Welcome to the Beatty Bridge audience and community. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and what makes you passionate about redefining food and beverage to organize, activate, and educate. I love that. I love that um, statement. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. And um, shout out to your team for, for booking me. Um, so, yeah, I... I think that, you know, I should start off by um, using a moniker that I, I, I use for myself, but also to describe my work, um, which is an origin forager. 
And by that, I mean we look at origin and specifically food origin as a reclamation movement. Um, and this is sort of what you see in High on the Hog when you learn about the contributions of Black folks to not just the cuisine and the culinary arts uh, of, of our country and um, really throughout the diaspora and around the world, but the culture of the country itself um, uh, is foundational, not to mention the wealth and the politics. And that's the intriguing thing about food for me is that it allows you to move into the space of all of these different discussions um, with full authority and presence because there is no facet of our lives in which food is not connected to, even though we don't often think about food with that context. And so part of the, the work that um, I try to, to present in the world um, is about getting people to think more deeply about their food and specifically from this origin context. Because if you follow the migration of food, you're really talking about the migration also of people, of plants, of animals, information. And that, that information, that technology of the mind is a critical one because, you know, part of the historical erasure um, of, of Black folks and part of the mistelling of our contributions in agriculture, for instance, like we see in episode two, the Rice Kingdom, it's not that we were uh, brought into this country as captives because of our physical bodies. It's actually the intellectual technology of the West African rice farmers that were brought to South Carolina, which ultimately created the foundational wealth for the colonies and ultimately the U.S. So I think it's really important for people to um, follow the journey of food, um, inquire about certain things that are part of our not just food culture, but our culture of gathering with friends and family and ceremony when food is almost present, the, the food memory. Um, what are the origins of those traditions and of those dishes? And I think uh, when people engage in that type of work, you it is very surprising where we end up. Um, and again, I, I think High on the Hog is just a really great example when you think you're, you're getting a straight ahead food show. Um, and yet you're getting this whole journey. So that's that's the beautiful part about food. And it was beautiful um, when, I mean, just from the beginning to the end and, and, and lacing the story. And I know a lot of people don't know the connection um, of food to, to, to story and to culture. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned about the West Africans and the rice farmers, uh, that's something that I just learned uh, probably about four years ago, really, um, in doing some research for, for my book. Um, and when I, w I visited this plantation in Louisiana and, and as they were given the history, it talked and they were actually given the true history of this plantation, so which was great. Um, but talked about you know West Africans that were brought because of their ability and and they knew how to cultivate sugarcane, and um, you know and they also knew how to build. Um, um, homes in that type of climate, you know. So it was because of intellect, and I, and I that was that was restoring for me because although you know that how history is told in school, um, it it dehumanizes the intellect of of Africans, and so that was a re, you know restorative for me to hear that. And I love how you intertwine that um, throughout the docu-series. Now, um, you are a sumule, sum, sum, sumule, sumule. I don't want to mess it up. Let's say it again. You Somewhere in there you had it. Um, <laughs> sumule. It's a sum, French word. Yeah, sumule. Yeah, okay, yeah. I'm going to get that. You are a sumule. And I thought 
That was incredible, just knowing that that is a wine expert, you know, and it is a French word. And to see you, when I think of a wine expert, I'm just going to be honest, my own biases get in the way of that. And I, and this was also restored when I read this about you and I'm like, just watching you even through the docu-series, I said, this guy is amazing. And to be an expert in wine that I would think if I didn't see a picture of you, when I see that, a sommelier, the first person I think is a French person, a white person, white male, then maybe secondly, I may think of a, a white female, but I don't see a black man. How did that happen? And um, just tell me a little bit about that story with you. Sure. Um I love that, though, you know, because that's that's such an honest reaction. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was my lived experience in the wine industry as well. So you're not that far off. Um, Basically, I got into wine when I was in high school, a senior in high school, um, because I had a friend who was a a privileged friend, still is one of my best friends, um, whose father... Who, who I greatly respected, uh, kept a wine cellar. And um, I remember I was very into food. I had already developed a relationship with food in high school. Um, I loved watching it on television. Um, and I also loved um, making and trying to recreate the, the dishes that I saw on television, which led me to cookbooks. So I was already deep into food at this time. Uh, but by the time I became a senior in high school, you know, I was eating a meal um, at my homeboy's house and his father went down to the cellar and he spent like 15 minutes down there trying to pick these bottles for dinner. And so I just remember thinking like, what does he know that that I don't know? I wanted to know. And I started to think of it, especially as a black person who um, grew up in black communities, black families, but went to, um, you know, for my starting in middle school, white schools. You know, um, like I was used to kind of moving in white spaces as a black person, even from a very young age. Mm -hmm. Um, But so I I started to to recognize that experience as one of language Um, and language doesn't just mean. Um, language in terms of how we're communicating now, but there are all kinds of different languages. Every industry has its own language. Every community has its own dialect. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And so I really looked at wine as a language that I wanted to learn because I wanted to be able to communicate to people um, like my my homie Birch's dad um, in the world of wine as well, because I was fascinated that he knew that language. And so um, I went to to culinary school shortly thereafter, a year later, um, as a 19-year-old. So I had a very non-traditional education. I didn't go to undergrad and graduate from college. Um, And when I went in culinary school, we started to take wine education as part of the, the curriculum. This was in Portland, Oregon which is just north of the Willamette Valley, which is a very, very famous wine-growing region, one of the finest wine-growing regions in the world. Um, And I was able to immerse myself in the world of wine at a very young age, um, at age 19. And so by the time I was 22, you know, I had become a sommelier. I had taken several tests. I had been mentored by some amazing people in Portland. And that journey in wine, you know, I I wanted to continue to pursue. And yet, as I continued to pursue it, um, going back to your initial reaction, I was so um, disheartened by how homogenous the industry was and the community was. I didn't really see a future for myself as a sommelier. And so as a result of that, I moved back to Atlanta um, this is in 07, and I started a nonprofit called International Society of Africans and Wine. It's a mouthful. We used to call it ISAW, and basically we it was my way of linking up with other black folks in the world of wine because this is pre-Facebook. We didn't have a way. There wasn't that many of us. And so what I did was um, started working with black 
winemakers in South Africa, black folks working in the wine industry in South Africa, spending a lot of time down there, um, building connections, um, you know, improving my skills and craft as a storyteller, um, really telling these land-based narratives, um, agrarian narratives that often are about disenfranchised populations, uh, which was true in South Africa, um, where the wine industry was founded upon enslaved labor by by Dutch colonists. And so this is a story that I knew well in my soul. um, And I I found myself deeply connected to that story of South African wine. So that allowed me to continue to be in the world of wine, show up in a way that made me feel whole. um, and, And really that experience kind of permeated my career in which Uh, It gave me the perspective to now look at food and wine as something that was radically transformative because it allowed us to get to the hard conversations, which are not um, otherwise possible in in polite society, you know, which is how racism gets perpetuated because no one wants to really have a hard talk. Wow, so good. And I think um, people seeing that, you know, um, there are Black sommeliers um, that's going to encourage other, you know, students, culinary students, or just other people watching it, like, this is something that I can do, or this is something I want to learn more about. So it really expands our vocabulary, (laughs) you know, um, and our culture um, as we tap into that. Um, Now, how did the docuseries come about? Like, you know, did you start out to say, hey, I want to do this, or is it something that just kind of happened? Um, well, I, I can't take credit for it, and I can't shout out um, the names Karis, Jagger, and Fabi and Tobek enough. Yeah. Um, they are the executive producers of High on the Hog. They are the ones who optioned the book, the original text, the original source material from Dr. Jessica B. Harris, who is an idol, an icon. Yes. Um, a legend um, in our world and and really in the world of literature um, in in U.S. history. Um, So really, Karis and Fabi are the ones who got everything going um, by optioning off uh, or getting the the rights to the book. They were so tenacious and persistent in in handling this story with the care that it deserves, um, not taking no for an answer, linking up with um, another brilliant director, Roger Ross Williams, um, and really put the team and the vision in place for this work to happen. Um, and I was connected through some mutual friends um, to, to Fabian and Karis, um, the EPs. And, you know, obviously this work, um, as I just explained with this whole origin context, um, I've been moving in this in this world and this work for a really long time. Um, and so, I mean, at first I thought we were talking about, you know, me coming on as like a producer, um, which I do a lot of to, to help, you know, bring this work to life. Um, but as I talked further with, with Fabian, um, I realized that the vision that they had was really um, for the viewers to have kind of this embodied experience, you know, through one person's point of view. Um, and that person was me. And, and so that's how I became the host. Um, it is an honor to be a, a part of the project. I don't think I will ever fully um, grasp the magnitude of it or fully even be able to um, articulate just how special the experience was um, and continues to be. I'm, I'm just really so honored to be a part of it. Yeah. I think your story took us to the country of Benin and Togo, where um, so many Africans can trace their DNA history um, due to the Atlantic slave trade. I know um, my history and ancestry coming through North Carolina, South Carolina, North Carolina, um, and of course, we know that this wasn't the map, um, you know, it wasn't the country Benin in, the, in Togo or it wasn't Nigeria at that time. Um, but it was more of um, kingdoms. And, you know, and so we know we're looking at a different map. Um, what did you discover that you weren't able to capture on the 
docu-series um, going into those spaces, um, those sacred spaces, you know? Yeah, I think the thing that you discover is the, it's the quiet parts. It's the intangible stuff. It's the, it's the emotion, you know, the feeling. Um, because, you know, as um, someone who loves reading, you know, um, as an independent scholar, publisher, um, I'm inundated with research and access to information. We can find stuff out but you can't find out a feeling, right? And so I think the, the for me, the thing that was just so um, impressionable is seeing, imagining what our world would be like had this colonial contact never happened. Had we, um, you know, had these kingdoms that continued to, to rule obviously not without conflict, right? We're talking about human beings, but just like, what would that experience have been like? I mean, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be here to see that, right. <laughs> you right. know? Right. But, but I am fascinated by that. And I'm fascinated by um, the, the sort of uh, longing, the gap in between the diaspora, you know, and what that homecoming feels like, not just for me, but anyone who has had the uh, immigrant experience, the refugee experience, um, being torn from a place, even that precedes you. But the spirit really understands that. And that's part of the emotion that, that you know, overcame me in that first episode is like, it, I didn't go into that scene, you know, being like, I'm going to cry, you know, but it's just mm -hmm. like the the emotion of, of the severance and, and the convening with, with your ancestors, really. Um, so what I learned um, is, is just the humility around that, that particular feeling. Um, but I also left feeling really connected as well. Mm -hmm. I think that that is a source of power that we all have, which is, um, you know, the one's identity, you know, yeah. uh, feeling like you have space in the world um, is a powerful thing. And, and I hope that this type of work um, in which food is the basis really allows us the opportunity to ground ourselves, um, find ourselves, take pride in our ancestry and our history. This goes for everyone. Right. And in finding that space for ourselves and the world, hopefully develop the empathy and the capacity to make that space for others, you know, in that kind of shared human experience that is rooted in, in tradition and legacy and ancestry that we all are a part of. That's a collective human story. Yeah. I, I, I knew as... I can't say that I knew exactly what you were feeling, but having visited Africa myself, um, more, more so East Africa, um, I remember that feeling when I got off the plane and we were met at the airport um, by the people that were hosting us. And um, one of the black men looked at me. I was um, I was the only black person with, with a, um, a with white people um, that was on our team, and he looked at me and he said, welcome home, sister. And um, and I remember just the overwhelming emotion that I had in just that moment. I could, um, I could only imagine what you felt like walking down that very road that possibly your ancestors had walked down. Like that was such a powerful moment. And thank you for being vulnerable um, enough to allow us to see that and not cut that part out of it uh, because it was a beautiful moment. And um, um, I, for I forget the professor's name that uh, that was with you and, and kind of guiding you through. Um, she was phenomenal <laughs> um, um, just in everything. But um, when you... One of the things that you, um, when we talk about the hi history, like, I really hope that, like, food and beverage, like, this this history and how it's told um, 
is so intriguing to me. You know, like like you were saying, there's so much you can get up underneath um, when you're telling this this cultural story. Um, I think it should really be a, a intricate part of Black history, and um, I would love to see that happen. And I want to just get your thoughts on just that alone. Hundred percent. I mean, that's yeah. what we're we're trying to create that right now. Uh-huh. You know, we're trying to um, give give us the language, the pride, the the interest. That's really what it comes down to because again, stories are so ubiquitous that we tend to undervalue their power. Yeah. And yet they are the basis for our entire belief system. Mhm. The basis of our entire way of engaging with the world. Like mm-hmm. like really think about that, you know what I'm yeah. saying? So, like, imagine the way that we understand the world are through the stories that we are told. We don't remember what we learned in school. You know what I mean? We we do yeah. remember the stories that are cultural stories that are passed down from friends or family. And those stories are so pervasive that they become indoctrinated in those communities that we are a part of. And part of that indoctrination is racism, mm-hmm. which is the institutional pillar of this country. Institutional, foundation, right? right? right. Irrevocable. Right. And, so, and so as a result of this, everyone, black folks included, absorb anti-black stories, right? And mm-hmm. so when I talk about the need for us to have pride and where we come from, it's it's really like it's it's an act of of love, but it's also an act of taking back power. Yes, because in the erasure of black people from our own history, ha- has contributed to feelings of anti blackness in our own communities, mm. right? And so, right. and so, when you talk about black history. It can't be black history for white people. MLK quotes that totally obfuscate his actual politic. Right. Right? In the name of creating comfort. When I talk about High on the Hog, I am explicit and unapologetic in saying this material was made for black people, by black people, with love. Mm-hmm. And yet, the material is for everyone to enjoy. And yes. the material, everyone will benefit in, in learning these stories. Because yeah. these are stories that have been absent, that are needed to correct historical error, omissions, right? Mm-hmm. So when I talk about reclamation of culture, food is a central part of that. And we are so glad that we can now share that the the culinary history of black people is so much deeper than soul food. Right. Because that is an easier story for other people and us to tell because of the obfuscation, right? Right. So now we, the stories that have been passed down to us even, Mm -hmm. black people, what is our food? Well, soul food. But that is such an incomplete history. Wow. You know? and, and so I love that as a black sommelier, I could say, yo, we do wine. Um, you oysters. Oysters. <laughs> I was just about to say, you know, <laughs> Thomas Downing, the oyster king, like like black cowboys. So we learn in High on the Hog, actually, there's nothing that we don't do. And it's really important that those stories are, are centered um, because our role and our presence in those stories to date has been completely erased. And that is its own form of violence, which is perpetuated culturally, right? And perpetuated in real life, like when land is taken. Right. 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 So displacement is really the through line. And whether it is a narrative displacement or physical displacement, it's a continuation of the ways in which Black folks have been erased. Right. Undervalued f- for the entire time that we've been on this continent. Been on this continent. Been on this continent.
This is so good. Aren't you loving this conversation? We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Friends, life is hard. And sometimes we need a little help. Navigating the stress of sudden changes in income, health complications, and or the loss of someone close can be overwhelming. Not to mention the stress of the tense time of political and social disharmony. Honestly, at this time, we all could use a little help. Well, guess what? There is help. There's help through BetterHelp.com. That's Better H-E-L-P. BetterHelp.com makes professional counseling. It makes it accessible, affordable, and convenient for anyone who may be currently struggling with life's challenges. If that's you, you can get help anytime, anywhere. BetterHelp.com offers access to licensed, trained, and experienced and accredited psychologists, marriage and family therapists, clinical social workers, and board licensed professional counselors. We want you to start living a happier life today as a listener. And as a Be The Bridge listener, you'll get 10% off of your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash be the bridge. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash be the bridge. So you can join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. You guys, it's a difficult time and we need these tools and we need a little help to encourage us on the way. Thanks for staying with us. Let's get back to our conversation. This reclamation of history is like a reclaiming, um, a owning our story and, and passing this down. And I think this is something, if you have not seen this docu-series, please watch it. Watch it with your children. Um, if, you, if you're listening to the podcast and you haven't seen it, I, I will suggest that you go watch it and then come back to the podcast. Because uh, when you tell the story of Texas and the whole, the introduction of Juneteenth, and when you tell the story of the black cowboys. Now I had I had heard stories, but when t- able to connect that story, and then looking at Bruno, um, Bruno's son that was right there, and how you got to experience that and experience what they ate, and that connectiveness. I mean, I mean, I'm one that when you start talking about bits and pieces of animals being put together, you know, like a lot of times I'm turning up my nose. But even with that, it made it a beautiful thing because of the history that was connected to it. I got context context for what um, some of the stories that I had heard to actually get this and contextualize it was, um, was a, I mean, was really meaningful. And that stew, the cowboy stew, oh my goodness. Like, and they're still doing this to this day. Like people are holding Holding these stories, and um, it is our job to go find them and tell them and write about them, and um, you know. And so, I love what you're doing through um, your media company and and this docu series. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about Hercules and um, and James Hemmings. When that story was told, I had to kind of like grip my teeth a little bit, like you know, because I know like. A lot of those recipes, um, people think Martha Washington <laughs> did a lot of those, you know. And so I love how um, um, you brought out that. What what was the research process and, and discovery? Um, I know this is based off of High on a Hog, the book, um, but just tell me a little bit about the research process because a lot of times we say these things and people try to push back and it's like, no, this is like documented. This is like, it's not, it's hidden. You have to go find it. But a lot of this is well-known history in some circles. And so tell, tell me a little bit about that creative process. Yeah. Of bringing these stories to life. Yeah, I think one of the best things about High on the Hog is that Dr. Jessica B. Harris, who is in that first episode and who, um, as I say, created that source material, she is and has long been not even one of, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, our nation's foremost scholar in African diasporic foodways. Mm-hmm. Going back to the early 1970s in 1972, when she wow. took her first trip to Benin, as she likes to say, 
before Roots came out, mm-hmm. right? And so this is someone who was writing about food and travel for Essence magazines in the early 70s from a Black perspective. I believe, I, I really hope I don't get this wrong. I need to figure this out. I think it's 13 books, maybe working her 14th book now. I don't want to shortchange her. So what I'm trying to say is that part of what makes this so special is that we as a, as a not just nation, but as the world coming to know the work of Dr. Jessica B. Harris, who has been at this for so long without the recognition that she mm-hmm. deserves. Yeah. And in fact, if you read her memoir, which I can't recommend enough, My Soul Looks Back, mm. what you will learn is that actually this food thing is just like a small part of her world. She could take you to school on language, which we see a little bit of uh, in the docuseries. She can take you to school on theater, on jazz, in the kind of company that she was keeping while she had that job at Essence were people like James Baldwin, Mm. people like Maya Angelou, who wrote the foreword too high on the hog, Mm -hmm. right? People like um, Toni Morrison, who was editing Dr. J's work. So when we talk about her, we ought to be speaking about her in this pantheon context of Mm -hmm. icons who were her actual peers which we learn in her memoir. And so to go back to your point around the history, especially with black women who are the keepers of our culture, Mm. they've been keeping this history. They've been documenting this history. This book came out in 2011, Mm. but it took two other black women to see that, to read that and to say, no, this material needs to be brought to new generations. It needs to be brought to the world so that this scholarship, which has actually been out here all along for people to read, can now get mainstreamed. And so stories that, you know, people like me and Omar and others who are featured that we well know, people like James Hemings, Hercules, um, you know, like these people have already permeated our work in life but this is a pretty esoteric thing for for black Mm -hmm. folks, right? And so what this does is allows us to kind of mainstream what has been true in our world, which is Dr. J has been a legend. Right. We've we've been kind of gathering around her scholarship for so long, Mm -hmm. and now collectively we get to put some respect on her name. But um, it's special having a, a historian um, and the work of a historian be the basis um, for High on the Hog because um, the history is really imbued in the whole experience. Yeah. And thank you for um, saying her name and lifting her work up and um, the f- and bringing to life um, the essence of her work. And like you said, she is someone, an icon that is living among us, you know, that has touched so many people that works that we have touched. And I think um, it's important for us to see how a lot of these stories are hidden, you know, um, um, sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally. And it does take, you know, sometimes someone else a, a black woman, a black man coming alongside and highlighting that work and not looking past that work and honoring that work. And you do that so well in the docuseries and honoring um, um, her. And one of the other things that were, you know, as we talk about Hercules, who was the, um, um, he was enslaved by um, George Washington. And then that whole story of how he had to train someone else so that, no, actually, that was James Hemming that had to train someone else. Um, He was Thomas Jefferson's. um, He was enslaved by Thomas Jefferson. In order for him to gain his freedom, he had to um, train his brother um, in order for that. But Hercules, actually, when he wanted to gain his freedom, um, he was sent back to the plantation. um, And then later... um, 
it's believed that he escaped. Um, and, you know, and so, I mean, it really, and th- and this is the thing, you know, there, th- this is what we talk about when we talk about black history and, and, and how it's hidden within American history. And we don't tell these full stories. And we talk about, you know, um, some of these founding fathers, like they're all heroes, but the thing is there's, there's, we can't just tell one narrative, you know, we have to tell the full and complete story. Um, and I just learned so much, um, and because when we don't tell the full story, what happens is the stories of African-Americans, the story of struggle, the story of dehumanization, all of that gets left out and it's erased. Um, and so you don't get this story of Hercules or you don't get this story of James Hemings because we've created one narrative of a story around George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And, you know, so I think it's important um, not only for us to do this work, but also for us to be truth tellers um, as a country um, and tell um, the full truth of our of our history, because we can't change what we conceal, you know, and we can't heal what we conceal. And so I think that's important. Um, now, I wanted to talk, you went to this, this story also takes us into Apex, North Carolina. And um, that that really hit me too, because most of my family's roots are in, um, in North Carolina. And my grandfather, who, uh, my great grandfather, who could not read or write, um, but at the end of his life, learned to write his name. And you see that in documents. Um, this man that was um, illiterate, um, managed to buy acres of land um, that we still have in our family today and that were that had false deeds twice he had to fight with lawyers to to keep that land so I understand how uh, we are connected to land and there's so much land that has been lost and stolen um, from the black um, diaspora I wanted to talk a little bit about the intimate domain that was happening um, with her family and how often are you seeing that? Um, And is this something that's happening um, to white landowners like it is happening in um, a lot of our communities? Mm. Wow. Um, You just said a lot. Well, I'm just so proud and grateful first for your your great-great-grandfather and your elders who have fought to to protect that land. Um, the the issue of land uh, cannot be overstated. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, a lot of my own personal radicalization um, around the need for black liberation and collective liberation um, really came as I more so started to understand land-based politics in history. Mm-hmm. Um, especially working in South Africa, um, you know, really understanding the horror of apartheid, uh, really understanding the horror of these families who each generation are raised on these farms, paid in alcohol, systemically, um, with no promise of getting out of these conditions. Mm-hmm. When we talk about the, the I mean, when I, the reason I talk about what's foundational, this goes back to the origin framework, like how did we get here? This whole country, this whole experiment, this experience called the United States, like what is the origin story? The origin story is violence mm-hmm. and genocide. Like it is so grim and as a nation, I mean, we are are so young comparatively um, to to the rest of the world, especially the continents of Africa and Asia. And so, what I've we're we're young enough where we can actually go back and see what has mm-hmm. transpired, because we have appropriate documentation from the onset of this country. And so what we learn and what we know to be true is that the foundation was based on a genocidal theft Mm -hmm. and what was stolen was land. Mm -hmm. And not only is that true of the the colonization of the United States or of of North America, but it, it became a source of pride of entitlement 
going back to this idea of story, manifest destiny, this Westford expansion, it became an inherent part of the right of being born in this country. Obviously, for some, not all. Mm-hmm. When you look at our story as black people with the land, we were taken off of our own land, brought here under conditions that are so unspeakable that we can only attempt to to try to convey the horrors of the actual vessels and the conditions of the vessels in the transatlantic slave trade, not to mention what happens upon arrival and in captivity, right? What are they here for? They're here to work the land, to work the land. This goes back to the rice conversation. Um, This is the whole thing about food. Why are we here? (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. of food sources. How did we stay alive to make it here? Well, Mm -hmm. rice and corn, fava beans and corn, the bare minimum corn from the Americas, part of this trade, part of this migration of people, of plants, of information. And so our relationship to food, our relationship to this country, the relationship between black people and white people foundationally is a relationship of exploitation, of subjugation and racism. That's a lot to overcome. Mm-hmm. We've been trying to for centuries now. Mm-hmm. Right. But that is that is our foundational relationship to white right. people. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we the way that we see that persist in 2021, I don't know the data around whether or not eminent domain is affecting white people in the same way. So I don't want to speak on that. But Gabrielle's story is a continuation of the story of black people, which is displacement, as I said. So it could be eminent domain. It could be uh, gentrification. It could be the false deeds. um, It could be the appraisals where if you're black, your appraisal is going to be $100,000 less for the same property. These are, it could be redlining um, Mm -hmm. in which black people are not allowed legally to buy into certain neighborhoods that they could otherwise afford. It is about the system that is in coordination with the banks and those HOAs, right? Like Mm -hmm. we have to understand how this all works together and what is the end result. The end result is a wealth gap and a wealth disparity that is land-based mm-hmm. that is now bigger than it was even during the period of reconstruction so we've gone backwards yeah we've yeah. gone backwards and that wealth that was generated with things like the GI bill that allowed white veterans to come back and have access to home loans mm-hmm that we didn't have access to, even though we fought alongside these same individuals. Mm -hmm. Well, now those people have grandkids who are going to inherit those homes for seven digits. Yeah. That's what we're talking about when we talk about generational wealth. And the stories that will be told about black people are just couldn't get it together. Mm Mm-hmm. We have to be honest about this land thing. So conversations around reparations... I, I know that people have different ideas about what it should be. To me, the theft was land-based, the wealth was land-based, the reparations has to be land-based, period. Yeah. yeah. That is the wealth of the country. Yeah. That's what was stolen. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's just like such a conversation that we need to have, you know, to educate ourselves and to, you know, and and also starting with um, indigenous land, you know? Um, and so I think that's important and that's valuable and we have to have the kinds of conversations. We, ha- we can't pretend like um, these tensions don't exist. And that's what we like to do, um, you know, in our country is pretend that these tensions don't um, exist. You mentioned a lot about the black um, wine workers in South Africa um, and about the, some socioeconomic development. And I know um, 
for generations of land also in South Africa uh, was taken from South Africans, you know, from black South Africans. And some of them where they still have the deed, but through apartheid, their land was taken um, and taken over. And some of them, like after apartheid, have the deeds to their land and they're reclaiming their land. But it's looked like it and sometimes in the news is making it look like um, they're oppressing white people, but only thing that they're doing is reclaiming what has been stolen from them. Um, and, you know, and so like, what are some of your thoughts around that? You know, let's, let, I want to hear it, you know, especially when it comes to, you're talking about the wine work workers. And so a lot of times we are, a lot of this stuff is indigenous to us, but we don't do this anymore. It hasn't been passed down, um, you know, and Matt, in massive ways because land, we were displaced. And so therefore we were the farmers, you know, we were the ones that were uh, building canals and, um, you know, finding ways for rice farms to work and sugar cane and all these um, um, excavation of land that was, um, that was a part of um, enslavement. And so when you look at that, in, in South Africa, just give us a little glimpse of some of that um, to understand some of that here in the American context. And sometimes that helps uh, with people understanding what's happening in other countries to give us a little glimpse of what's happening um, here. Yeah, I, I think that um, the the similarities are 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 eerie, um, but also they're easy to identify, and so. It's quite simple to me to understand what's happening. There is a racialized ruling class, in South Africa's case, a racial minority, right? Which is going to be the case here in 2050, in which white people will be the racial minority, and I promise you will persist as the ruling class. Mm -hmm. So we can look at South Africa to understand how that co-optation will happen. And of course, it persists through 20 different generations of families um, with Dutch names and English names um, who continue to live and prosper, in particular in the Western Cape of South Africa, which is a multi-billion dollar industry of wine, tourism, and viticulture, of which Black people make up over 90% of the workforce and own less than a fraction of a percent of the land. It is diabolical. And the only opportunities for black people to own land are we see you need to be well-heeled, well-connected, right? You need to be able to jump through these hoops. And so the people who are, the communities, the families who are in greatest need of being able to have governance and sovereignty over this resource, which is a land, which is the land, they don't have the ability to do that. And so I think like, and then of course we see the stories that are told as a result of some of these schemes, which were not full heartedly implemented, right? Not implemented with care, Right, and, and you have a population after centuries of disenfranchisement, not decades, you know, yeah. centuries. And then you wave the stick, you say, okay, no other support, no resources, no context, fine, take this little unerable share of land and go make it work. In the ways in which racism is systemic, Repair needs to be systemic. And so without the systemic support for even the minuscule land-based projects that happen, then you don't see the results that you would hope to see. And when you don't see the results, the narrator, who is the one who controls the situation, the one who holds power, is the narrator of the story, right? So and that story is disseminated, distributed across CNN so that now you know about this and you can ask me about it. Mm -hmm. but, but when we see the anchors, when we see who the farmers who they're interviewing, the context that is presented, who are we not hearing from? Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. Who, do, who are we not hearing from? 
just the same thing here in the U.S. And so I think when you look at like these conversations around land, land is a form of dominance. Mm-hmm. Stories are a form of dominance and of suppression. It is a threat in Georgia. When mm-hmm. Georgia goes blue, hold on now, hold on. Mm-hmm. We gotta change everything. We gotta make it impossible. Oh, black folks, y'all can't go to church um, and organize and, and go vote after church. Mm-hmm. That's dangerous. So no matter what amount of progress that we have, you can always anticipate those in power to push back on it. And unfortunately, that remains true in South Africa, has remained true there for centuries. It is true here, has remained true for centuries. Yeah, yeah. What do you hope people will take away from your work um, with the docuseries High on the Hog? Um, I think kind of what I was just alluding to, you know, looking for who's missing. Yeah. Who, who, who's missing? And so you can go into your own industry and community and start to interrogate the stories that you've been taught and told. Who told you those stories? Mm. Right? So who's corroborating those stories? Mm-hmm. And if there are characters in the story who you don't hear from, but you hear about, Let me say it again. You don't say it hear- again. I was about to tell you to say it again. <laughs> you hear about them. Those are the stories that need to be interrogated. Yeah. And that is what I hope people take from this work, you know, yeah. and we're just using food as an opening to be able to take people there. Yeah, I love it. Uh, what other what are some other projects that you're working on? And will there be a second season? Um, I don't know about the second season. That's <laughs> way outside of um, my jurisdiction, but um, the support has been real and loud. Um, and I can only imagine that people um, at Netflix making those decisions see that. So we're optimistic. We're hopeful. I think we would all love to, to make another one. Um, as far as uh, for me, you know, I, 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 as I mentioned, I have a company, Whetstone. We're a food media yeah. company. So we publish magazines, we make podcasts, we make videos. Um, So we're just going to keep doing what we do um, and amplifying these kind of food origin stories from around the world. I love it. Uh, What is bringing you hope um, in your work? What is bringing you hope in your work that you're doing right now? Oh, easily the response to High on the Hog, of course. (laughs) Of course, this is is my whole life's thesis, you know, this, this radicalizing transformative power of food and identity and culture and people really get it you know it's like it doesn't even need to be explained the way that they are responding to the show um lets me know like yeah not only is this thesis correct but we we need to really double down on it and i don't think we have really seen it proven out um at scale in this way so i'm really optimistic about what kind of media um, we now have the capacity for. Yeah. Um, how do you keep your joy and how are you practicing self-care in this, I would say, um, tumultuous world that we live in, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, you know, I'm very good at at leisure, you know? I believe in, in Black leisure, Um in fact, leisure is what got me into this world and got me drinking wine and eating mm-hmm. nice food um, because that's how I like to enjoy. So um, that's how that's what I do. It's for work, but I'm really good at um, also <laughs> having it be the thing that keeps me happy as well. Um, right now, I'm in northern New Mexico, and um, it's it's beautiful here. Um, it's quiet here, and so I like to work in nature, close to nature, um, so that when I close my computer, if I want to take a walk or watch the sunset or take a break midday um, and be close to to nature, I can do that. So those are um, all the ways in which I take care of myself. 
I love it. I love it. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, we will definitely post all the information about uh, Whetstone and um, and all the work that you're doing. And we're just grateful for you, your voice, your work. Um, we're grateful for the executive producers and um, Dr. Jessica B. Harris, the scholar who has documented this uh, when it wasn't popular, you know, um, you know, and has been unseen for so long, but now she is seen and she is known. And so we're so grateful that you're continuing to bring this story to life. Thank you so much for um, educating our Be The Bridge community and helping us to understand how we can activate and how we can educate and how we can organize around uh, redefining food and beverage. Okay. Thank you so much. It was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Go to the donors table if you'd like to hear the unedited version of this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Be The Bridge podcast. To find out more about the Be The Bridge organization and or to become a bridge builder in your community, go to bethebridge.com. Again, that's bethebridge.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to rate and review it on this platform and share it with as many people as you possibly can. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today's show was edited, recorded, and produced by Trayvon Potts at Integrated Entertainment Studios in Metro Atlanta, Georgia. The host and executive producer is Latasha Morrison. Lauren C. Brown is the senior producer. And transcribed by Brittany Prescott. Please join us next time. This has been a Be The Bridge production.